This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. This week, our special guest is Amity Schles, author of a new book about the Great Society. Now, what would the 60s and 70s have interest for people today? Because a lot of the issues that arose then we're now refacing today. What kind of country should we be? Where should we go in areas of uh, health care, student debt, and other issues? That's why this book has relevance, not only for what happened in the past, but also the debates that we're having today. But first, what's ahead? Well, two big things, of course. The Democratic Party having another presidential debate on Wednesday in Georgia. Several big things to watch out for. Can Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota make a breakthrough? People are looking for it. So far, it hasn't happened. Two big names won't be at the debate. Michael Blumberg and Deval Patrick. Deval Patrick, former governor of Massachusetts, announced last week that he is running for president. Supposedly, Barack Obama likes Deval Patrick. People expected during his administration that Patrick would become the attorney general. Instead, he stayed as a two-term governor of Massachusetts. Michael Bloomberg, he's already filed for Alabama. He's chosen not to compete in the New Hampshire primary. Will he formally get in? What will be his themes? What impact will he have on the prospects of Joe Biden, who still is sort of the front runner? And people will be looking Can Joe Biden complete a sentence and not wander off? Well, the debates haven't been very kind to Biden, but people say in town halls and meetings with small groups, he shines. So we'll see what happens there. And of course, impeachment. A lot of fireworks about nothing. When the impeachment hearings began a few days ago in the bars of Washington, not much interest. They wanted to watch other shows. So unless something big comes along, this pre-scripted dance will continue. There'll eventually be an impeachment. The Senate won't convict. And most of the country will wonder, what was this all about? Very telling for the Democrats. Polls show that in the 17 battleground states, 55 to 60 percent of the voters oppose the impeachment proceedings, including over 60 percent in the critical state of Florida. On the economic front, we'll get the weekly petroleum report on Wednesday, natural gas on Thursday. We'll also see unemployment claims. They come out each week. Last week, not bad. Economy's still showing basic strength despite the fall off in investment. Also, on Tuesday, we'll get housing starts. Housing has been helped by low interest rates. Will we see a pickup there? So a lot to look out for. And of course, riots in Chile continue. They're now going to have a new constitution, perhaps stripping away some of the free market reforms that made Chile the most prosperous country in Latin America. And of course, that perpetual disappointment Argentina. The peso continues to fall down. People are turning to the dollar, turning away from the peso. We'll see what happens next. And in Europe, Britain is having an election and it is heating up. We'll see what happens there. December 12th is the date to look for, but there'll be plenty of fireworks before that election day. And now, my conversation with Amity Schles, 
whose new book, Great Society, A New History, is coming out this week. My guest today, special guest is Amity Schles. She's author of a powerful new book called Great Society, A New History. Like her previous history, she focuses on real people, which bring these books to life. She previously wrote an award-winning biography of Calvin Coolidge and what many regard as the definitive history of the Great Depression entitled The Forgotten Man. Now, talking about Coolidge, Amity chairs the board of trustees of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation. Amity, welcome. Thank you for coming. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here and to present a book that was researched when I was working at Forbes. The period covered by Amity's book, the 1960s and early 1970s, has particularly relevance today, especially with the presidential election coming up. The big question, what kind of country should America be? The big debate, capitalism versus socialism. The role of government in health care, in education, the environment the dollar and the Federal Reserve, immigration, the U.S. role in the world, China and trade. While these issues are hitting today, this is not the first time in American history we've undergone this kind of soul-searching, not the first time many Americans have yearned for profound changes. The period covered in Amini's book is another such era, and the story she tells bears directly on us today. The Great Society was what Lyndon Johnson, who became president after John Kennedy's assassination and then won his own election victory in 1964, called his promises of massive change in American life the Great Society. But, as Amity points out, this yearning for change preceded Lyndon Johnson. She says many Americans ache to make American society over. Groups that nursed this ambition were diverse, from outright socialists, and she covers one of them in the book, to academics, labor union leaders, even some leaders of big corporations. So, Amity, describe this ache back in the early 60s to make over the United States and why. Today, we think idealism is very strong, but it was even stronger in the early 60s and more more directed. There was a weariness over what President Eisenhower called the military-industrial complex, a genuine weariness and a warranted weariness, because the country appeared to be run and was run to some extent by big companies, big government, and big unions. That left a lot of people out. Uh, it was the the regimen of the organization man uh, that put off people. The the regimen of the assembly line put off people, and our assembly lines in our auto industry weren't particularly pleasant. They were just fast. Uh, and then there was a great new um, figure on the scene. That was the young person, the young man or woman. Demography meant that there were an awful lot of young men and women. The baby boom was coming. And this younger generation really didn't get all the premises of preceding generations. Maybe they they hadn't lived through the Depression. Maybe they um, were born during the war at that point and then later after World War II. So they were just lighter-hearted, happier, and more hopeful. That's a positive way to put it. A negative way to put it is uh, they dreamed of things that older people knew were impossible. 
Yet before this urge to reform was over, you point out, Washington left no area untouched. The arts, TV, radios, highways, civil rights, housing, cities, health care, rehabilitating youth, going to the moon, fighting the Vietnam War, eliminating poverty. And the question you ask is, or the question that was posed at the time, was how do we become great? And people had diverse opinions on that. Walk us through uh, the various ways people thought America should be reshaped. Really, there were two plans, uh, two thoughts in mind. One was that we become great through the public sector, and the other was that we become great through the private sector, through the company. So in the book, we we chose. We chose the public sector. The private sector's job was to supply the money that the public sector spent to get to great. It was as simple as that. And many people thought that was all right. Remember, a lot of Americans had served in the Army, and they had seen what America could do, and the Army was a government institution. Well, why would that not carry over to civilian life, to social benefits and so on? That made the government Only the government can operate on scale was the assumption. Well, you How, point out that uh, people felt the federal government had to do these changes. The states were hopeless. Oh, I didn't even mention states. I didn't even say that word state. It wasn't a word, right? It was all federal. They, and again, I do believe military service was a strong influence on people in 1960. They had been in the war or they had been in the army and they'd seen that the government had trained them and made them better if they lived and most did than they had been before. Maybe they also had um, funding, GI funding afterwards. They got subsidized housing afterwards. So people kind of believed the government was good at big projects. And as Norman Pindaris wrote, trying to describe the era, they considered uh, improving American society just a, a, a cleaning up action, a white, a, an easy job relative to winning World War II. So they were quite sanguine about um, about the, the possibility of government achievement in the area of social policy. And one of the things that uh, was a characteristic of the era was taking prosperity for granted, even though Kennedy had tax cuts which reduced the number of recessions. You point out in the book that people felt, no, you could beat up the corporations a little bit, uh, hit them a little more, but they were always going to be there. And then talking about Lyndon Johnson, you point out he felt legislation could cure everything, that experts could deal with everything. Well, that's right. It had been a long time since the Great Depression by then. 1940 to 1960 is a long time, and the war intervened and confused everyone. So they believed in experts, um, and this expertise came from the university. It came from the MBA programs in particular. Remember, before World War II, the MBA was not a common thing. It was a new thing. The University of Chicago, for example, only got its MBA program in the 50s, I believe. So what what, what was an MBA? It was a planner. The networking element was there, but it was less emphasized. We, we, we discovered that the most important thing about the MBA is networking only much later. Right. What we thought then was it was technical knowledge and technical knowledge is important in the army. An engineer is useful always. So we had a kind of technocracy uh, takeover and and was invited into government both by President Kennedy and then President Johnson. 
One of the great post-World War II programs that actually worked was, you mentioned the GI Bill of Rights, which enabled literally millions of veterans to go to college at government cost, get an opportunity they never had before. They could leave college without uh, government, without uh, student debt. And that worked. So you also point out, though, that you mentioned the New Deal, the Depression, and Tell us how the memories had faded that the New Deal of Roosevelt, yes, it gave us some new institutions, particularly Social Security, but in terms of fighting unemployment, it was a massive failure. The record of the New Deal was a massive failure indeed when it came to unemployment. The unemployment was for just about every minute over 10 percent and sometimes closer to 20. It's unemployment we couldn't even imagine today. 15 out of 100 people unemployed. but Just to put that in perspective, what we call the Great Recession of 2008, unemployment peaked at about 10.5%. But in 1938, five years after Roosevelt came to power, we had another depression, 20% unemployment. That was the so-called depression within the depression. Yes. So imagine the whole 30s, no work. Then government comes and gives you work. That's World War II, right? The army... Then government helps you after you come out of the army as a proud veteran, helps you learn, helps you buy your house, tells you your IQ is higher than you thought. Uh, government uh, finds you finds you work, right? Everyone loved the army more or less. Um, and that, uh, or let's just say on balance, everyone respected what the government could give and the way they had encountered government was through the army. And... The memories of those failures had, had faded. Now, in the 1960s, early 1970s, we're going to touch on several areas where some good things got done, but there were disasters that live with us today. And you point out, once again, many Americans rate socialism as the generous philosophy, but the results of our socialism were not generous. Yes. Well, so imagine young people wanting to do something. And looking around, they knew they had learned that communism was bad in Russia. But the idea of collective work could be tested in the United States, they believed. And one of the groups I um, study in the book and who, who, who I follow was Students for a Democratic Society. So, it, first of all, um, very idealistic young people. One of the things they wanted, um, the dorm rules to change at college so no grown-up was there to block a boy from going into a girl's room, so-called parietals, very small co collegiate things. They wanted um, life to be happier. They wanted not to have to go in a suit and tie into the military-industrial complex. They didn't want to be the perfect housewife in the suburb with the perfect clothes reaching up and down her GE oven, you know. Um, but beyond that, they wanted in the same mix, and these are young people, they mix things up. In the same mix was they they really wanted to do more collectively. They wanted to help the poor. Some of them were poor. They certainly wanted to get rights for blacks in the South. They, that was the immediate problem, and it was a real problem. So that legitimized them, right? We go down to the South. We're going to help out. Only 8 percent of blacks in certain areas of Mississippi, are registered. We're going to register them. So that was the legitimate work. And then the socialism work, I find less legitimate and was much, much vaguer. What's interesting to me in terms of uh, when we think about young groups now, a lot of us like to subsidize young groups 
you know, they're the future, subsidize a college, subsidize a club, right? The subsidizer of this uh, legendary meeting of the SDS founders at Port Huron, Michigan, was the unions, uh, the United Auto Workers. So they, so when you you imagine the student movement as being, and this is the fallacy of our memory, student movement as being totally independent, young people, brave. They were brave, but they weren't totally independent. Uh, Very often they were backed by someone. Just as today, for example, a website could be backed by George Soros, and you don't you think it's just independent, fiery uh, opinion or knowledge. Things are backed, and uh, the UAW was very committed. The UAW was the United Auto Workers, right? Sorry, one of the most powerful unions in the country was very committed to uh, gaining the concept of gaining a youth wing. And what is sad, hilarious, and lovable, and tragic all at once about this relationship was the UAW realized it didn't like these students if they were later they grew up to become nihilist and violent and call for strange things and the UAW actually supported the Vietnam War pretty pretty long so the students began after the civil rights movement which the UAW supported in this area um, to protest the Vietnam War and the UAW wasn't so sure about that uh, so. They had created a monster through their own funding. And one of the interesting things to find was the the, the precision with which they managed this important, m- mythical, epic Port Huron meeting. We'll soon get to one of the tragic figures in your book, good man but bad results, Walter Ruther. But let's start with the epitome of this idea we can change everything for the better. Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty. Uh, this was not going to be welfare. This was not going to be what the British called the dole, just handouts. Yet that's what it became. Uh, describe the, you know, they thought they were going to get rid of poverty in Appalachia, St. Louis, elsewhere. But it became welfare. And as you say in the book, benefit payments instead of prosperity. Worse, a new kind of poverty, a sense of downtroddenness. Walk us through the premise of the war on poverty, and why did it have results opposite of what its architects thought possible? And again, focusing on people, you focus on Sergeant Shriver and his five briefcases that he brought to work, took home each night. Sergeant Shriver is a lovable character. This was the in-law of the Kennedys. And he was put Johnson, for our listeners, was put by Lyndon Johnson in charge of the war on poverty. He was put in charge sort of reluctantly. Uh, of the war on poverty, he had succeeded with the Peace Corps, which was a specific social effort, succeeded, uh, anyway, he was perceived to have succeeded with the Peace Corps, sending young people around the world uh, to to help out in local communities and do good. So he envisioned a kind of domestic Peace Corps. And so did Johnson, who had worked in the National Youth Administration as a young person. During the 1930s. During the 1930s under Roosevelt. So this was the continuity of other projects. And Shriver was in charge. And they had this idea that welfare isn't enough. You have to empower people. They have to get woke. And then they will speak up and take and regain the franchise in their town. What was interesting about it, the this was called the Office of Economic Opportunity or the War on Poverty, was it wasn't just for the South. Here you see the expansion. We need this in the North and in northern cities. The OEO, the Organization for Economic Opportunity, was the official agency to fight poverty. The OEO was a new agency, an official agency 
to Fight Poverty, Office of Economic Opportunity was what it was called. They didn't say Office of Benefits. So that reflected the political compromise. The Office of Economic Opportunity was the poverty headquarters for the Great Society, where the poverty czar, Sergeant Shriver, sat. We, um, and so the, the ridiculous premise of the OEO was that young people, like a domestic Peace Corps, basically, would go into towns and help the citizens there improve their lives. question is how, right? Uh, and one of the obvious uh, answers would be find a job for them. That wasn't always what they did. They, they um, instructed poorer people and tried to draw them to their meetings, and they didn't always come, to demonstrate, to um, not only register to vote, but also go to city hall. And this was, um, so the idea was once they were enfranchised, they would get a job. Once they had self-confidence, they would get a job. And Shriver did send people all of the, over the country for this. There was a lot more to the OEO. One thing I'll mention was legal services, which was a little-noticed program that started in the OEO. And that idea was, again, to create little, like, storefronts to help poor people. And you could go in there and you could get whatever welfare you were entitled to or help with getting that welfare. You could get advice and you could maybe get a lawyer. That sounds nice. You certainly need a lawyer when you're poor from time to time. But the law, the nature of the law the OEO offered shifted. It went from individual cases, like what we a think divorce of, or, like a divorce, or, my husband beats me, uh, my father took my house, to class actions. So it, it, to efforts to change American law through litigation. That did not have to happen. We're so familiar with that now, but it didn't have to happen. Pro bono law up to that date was for individuals, very rare, except for the ACLU, to have group cases. So this little core of lawyers, Shriver started with the um, dramatic uh, enthusiasm and support of Bobby Kennedy, who had been— attorney general at the time. Well, after, actually. But so it was just departing, exactly, just departing. Bobby Kennedy was attorney general, then he was senator in— so 1964. The yeah. last speech Bobby Kennedy gave, or one of the last, as attorney general was at the University of Chicago Law School, where he kind of had a ask not what you can do, what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country for lawyers. And he said, children, basically, you graduating University of Chicago law students, little pro bono work from your traditional firm is not enough. You must also go out in the world and perhaps full-time be a public interest lawyer. And by the time uh, the end of this book, which is the early 70s, there were more than a 1,000 public interest lawyers in the network created by the war on poverty full-time. So those people were all around the country launching lawsuits, imagining that through litigation, life for the poor or disadvantaged could become better. On the activist groups, you uh, and community action, things like organizing rent strikes, what, what was that going to do at the end of the day? But uh, OEO, you point out, crowded out real movements, created these government-subsidized movements, but uh, the kind of movements you'd normally get from a community didn't happen. Right. The civil rights movement was a real movement. And to a large extent, it was led by blacks in the South. 
various groups. That's great. And they, then the OEO, and the OEO comes in is all more all of, all of these uh, <clears throat> bureaucrats creating fighting poverty. Hardly any blacks, right? They were they were college educated people from the north who wanted to do good, mostly white, and they kind of took over. And there is a little sad line in there somewhere where um, one civil rights activist says, "We were doing." projects involving voting in this dangerous part of the world. And then Head Start, which was also an OEO project, came in and they crowded out all the other social projects. And uh, that was, you can understand, it was not at the beginning of this book, around the middle, the black power movement began not to have whites in the civil rights movement. And you can understand their point of view if you watch what the war on poverty did. Strange people from somewhere else come in and tell us what is wrong and how to fix it. Uh, that was the resistance. So the, the Black Power movement wasn't just anger. It was also common sense. Let there be a black community and we will solve the problem. The more I read about what the Johnson administration was trying to do, the more sympathy I had for the Black Power movement. And uh, you mentioned Head Start. A program designed to give uh, youngsters better education so they could have a better life. But this wasn't local control. This was the federal government moving in. Well, I always had a hard time understanding why conservatives were opposed to Head Start. What's wrong with nursery school? How can you dislike that? I mean, come on, guys, right? But what it was was, and uh, Head Start wasn't just two hours a day nursery school. It was closer to daycare. Uh, and it worked with the family, so the family might get a lawyer through Head Start. They might have an after-school play group because of Head Start. They might um, get instruction and community work from Head Start. And Head Start was all from the federal government. There had long been a war between states and the federal government about education, and education had belonged to the states. What Head Start was, from the point of view of the states, was a wedge through nursery school to crack the state control of all education up to grade 12. Once they did Head Start, what were they going to do next? And Head Start was a big program. There were thousands of kids in Head Start almost right away. So that shocked the locals in towns, and it sidelined whatever preschool for the poor existed. And believe me, that did begin to exist. That is, local local efforts existed. America, more or less, in most places, had interesting local efforts um, to educate the lower earners in their community. And it was also crowded out, wiped out by the big war on poverty. Which gets to an American tradition talking about education, where even before public education in the late 1800s, every town felt they had to bring in a teacher to teach. And even though we didn't have a public school system, the amazing thing was in the 1800s, de Tocqueville noted it, Tocqueville noted it, that uh, we had the, one of the highest literacy rate in the world, and we we're a voracious nation of newspaper readers. Right. Well, the question is, what would have happened? It's very hard to do counterfactual, but it, what would have happened absent the Great Society? Before, people who study welfare and poverty have statistics that suggest that we fewer and fewer Americans as a percentage were in poverty um, at the end of the 50s and the 60s. And 
some statistics suggest that the rate of emergence from poverty slowed um, as a result well, of, of the, the war on poverty. One of the stunning uh, statistics is that black unemployment rose above white unemployment, whereas in the 1950s, the two had been about equal. But after the war on poverty, black unemployment went up, family breakdown, and you also point out black families outside who, who, who uh, stayed together, who came to the North, stayed together, had incomes just about the same as whites. But with family breakdown, that was no longer true. That's right. Well, one of the villains in my book actually got started well before the 1960s, which is public housing. So imagine a war between Tocqueville and Karl Marx. And the middle class people get Tocqueville subsidies to subsidies to be like Tocqueville. That is, middle class vet gets um, money to buy a house in a community of his choice. He gets money from the federal government to attend the university of his choice often, right? But for the poor, they didn't get that funding Tocqueville idea. They got Marx. The situation enabled uh, young men without a lot of record to buy a house. And that was, by and large, a great thing. What did we do for the poor? The opposite. We said, you are, as I say, Tocqueville, Marx, you need to live in Marx land. You need to live in vertical housing in the city that you rent because you can't afford to buy. And the housing, and this was coming out of World War II, and it went all the way up through the 60s. The housing was mass housing. It was very much... The, the whole program of urban renewal was very much enraptured with European international architects who tended to build bland and big. Um, we'll get to the housing in a, in, a, in a moment, the horrors that happened there, and you focus on particularly one in St. Louis. Uh, you talk about, though, the revolt of the mayors. The mayors thought originally the war on poverty meant money would come in, you'd, they'd be in charge of the job training, there would be union training, and... Uh, all would be well. And then they suddenly realized they were being sidelined. That's right. So imagine this from the point of view of Mayor Richard J. Daley, the boss of Chicago, whose point of view I never imagined I would be even looking at. But here we are. Richard J. Daley, Richard J. Daley got Kennedy elected. We often wonder how, but he did. We, we, we can surmise how he did it in yeah. the morning of November of 18, 1960. Right. Yes. And then he got Johnson elected in 1964 with his awesome Democratic machine in Chicago. So when he heard about this war on poverty, a billion dollars for poverty, he figured out what share of that was Chicago's. He put all his ideas in a big box and he mailed the box to Sergeant Shriver, whom he knew. And he thought would come back, checks for each individual Mayor Daley poverty program. No, no. Um, and this really um, was unwise of Shriver. Instead, what they got was institutions more or less created by the OEO in Chicago, in his territory, new institutions. And this is a, just a very bad case of this syndrome. The only idea I like is one I thought of. Right. So that was the OEO mentality. They, 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 nothing before had been any good in the world. They weren't going to take advantage of things that existed, more or less. They were going to build it all anew, New Jerusalem, build it all anew. So um, as a result, um, sometimes nothing happened. Now, before, let's close on the war on poverty. One of the uh, points you make in this book, which is going to really raise hackles, 
is you compare Lyndon Johnson to Richard Nixon. In the historiography of today, Lyndon Johnson, eh, some things didn't work out well, but good, Nixon, evil. You make the point in terms of policy, it was continuity, and in many senses, Nixon built and spent more than Lyndon Johnson. Well, food stamps are a good example. They were small, food stamp spending. It grew a lot. Nixon's view was he wanted to stay president. <laughs> he was, so he had to placate. And of course, Nixon had a Democratic Congress, so it was split, right? That's very difficult for a president. And it, he he just gave in on a lot of social welfare spending, but he pretty quickly with the Vietnam War lost interest in creative social programs, even good ones, and became the Nixon of the cartoon. So so uh, that was interesting. You asked why were Nixon and Johnson similar. I will mention one way that doesn't involve the war. It's the Fed. Both presidents were unhappy with the Fed chairman. The Fed chairman was— Federal Reserve chairman. A Federal Reserve chairman. So what Trump does is not new. Right. What Trump does is not new. What— Trump, when Trump, President Trump bullies the Fed, he's operating in an old tradition. Lyndon Johnson was very unhappy with William McChesney Martin, the Fed chair of that time. And he even hauled him down to the ranch, the Johnson Ranch, to berate him. him. Threw him against the wall. It is alleged, yes. And he he, he said, you know, gosh darn it. I'm uh, I'm not going to swear the way he did it. Gosh darn it, Martin. People are dying in Vietnam and you're not lowering interest rates. You'd think that Nixon, who uh, he pretended to be much less political and more technical and more policy-ish, might have been a bit different, but he wasn't. He bullied his Fed chair, who was Arthur Burns, mercilessly. And I chronicle that in the final chapter. So the war on poverty was lost, and you've mentioned housing. And uh, some thought it was a panacea for the poor, especially in the cities. But urban renewal, you point out, became black renewal, removal, destroyed black communities, putting them, as you use those words, virtual cages. Walk us through these massive public housing projects, Supposedly for benefit of people, but massive destruction of community and how people lived. We think, why would a poor community be angry? Well, one reason the poor communities, we're talking now of the northern cities, were angry was their homes were bulldozed, their first homes in Detroit, in St. Louis, which I describe in other cities, for urban renewal. And the idea was to give them a better home and a clean new building instead of, quote unquote, a slum. But the clean new buildings were unhappy places from the get-go. They, when you put a bunch of families who are have troubles together, the children run off and become a gang. When you can't fill the building, and that was part of the story too, Steve, that's already trouble because the troublemakers go in the empty apartments. That's we, I focus on Pruitt Igo because it was so hopeful. It was a nice idea, tall buildings in St. Louis, but instead it but just they called acres in the skies. Acres in the skies, right? But but it just displaced um, people who had a home that could have used improvement, but it was still a home, and stuck them all in a building. The other missing factor um, in St. Louis, at least, was economic growth. It, it, the growth went outside the city. 
And so the jobs weren't there for the people who lived in Pruitt-Igoe, so they couldn't advance. So why shouldn't their sons revolt and become gang leaders? At the beginning, in the beginning of Pruitt-Igoe, too, um, state law was such that you couldn't receive welfare unless your father was gone. They used to hide the father in the closet in Pruitt-Igoe. So uh, that was welfare policy left over, but Breaking still very, up families. that broke up families. It really is true. It's not just a myth, the breakup of a family by the state. Welfare went to the mom, but only if there was no dad. So, so this is very sad. Um, and um, what I discovered in writing this book, what these people show me, is people want to house themselves. They don't want to be housed. Um, civil rights. The Act of 64, big part of it was the public accommodations. People don't realize today it was legal then to discriminate on the basis of race. 65 Voting, Voting Rights Act, also indisputably crucially important giving people the basic rights in this country. And yet, going beyond those two landmark pieces of legislation, other things happened that you say resulted in group politics. They didn't stop with, okay, we've broken down barriers in public accommodation, we've broken down the barriers to the right to vote, but it went beyond that. Well, Johnson led the way on that. So you, you think of it as um, positive rights and negative rights as well. So the right to vote, the right to work, the right to be treated decently, the right to walk down the street, those are indivi- Those are just what we call negative rights, um, basic rights that we are sure everyone should have. Johnson turned and he said, you know, civil rights is not enough. Uh, voting is not enough. Open schools is not enough. And he gave a speech at Howard University that said, I will also help. And that, that is the, the culture of affirmative action. I will, we need to do much, much more than open the doors. So that is the turning point, the hinge of the great society, where it goes from negative rights to positive rights. You will receive help. You are entitled to help. And, you know, in, and at the same time, there was something else going on in the courts, which I try to capture. The question was whether federal payments were really entitled property. If you received Social Security, was it yours? No, a famous case, Fleming v. Nestor, said it was not yours as property. And the Social Security Administration might, if it had a good reason, shut you off at any time. It was at the favor of the state that you received your Social Security benefits. The new law, led by Charles Reich of Yale, said that welfare was property, just the way a patent was property. And that... that you really were owed welfare and it was breaking the law to deprive people of welfare. So that was the birth of this sense of what we call entitlement. You're really entitled. You're legally entitled to receive, not just to get an open door. So the courts began to change on that. There was a famous case, Goldberg v. Kelly, about welfare, where the court ruled that essentially that that property is a welfare payment or the other way. That was not logical to people before 1960. That was a shift in our, our courts. Now, um, unions, industrial unions, uh, government unions started in the early, so got the imprimatur of Kennedy in the early 60s, became the massive force today. 
But in the 60s, it was industrial unions that were still predominating. And you focus on Walter Ruther, we mentioned him before, head of the United Auto Workers, a man of rock-like integrity, somebody you could absolutely trust. Uh, and when he had the you point out, when they, they had the sit-ins in the 1930s where they'd sit in the auto plants on, on strike, his workers, he made sure, did not damage the machinery. They were not going to, in the name of their cause, destroy property. Extraordinary man. But yet, in the way he and others conducted labor management relations, ended up nearly destroying the U.S. auto industry. In the 1960, we were three times as productive as the German auto industry, you point out. By the 70s, Japan and Germany were making cars better than the U.S. Walk us through the public drama of these negotiations which prevented the kind of cooperation that the Japanese and Germans had on their assembly lines that enabled them to end up turning out better autos for a while. Let's just talk about the style of labor policy, because that gets at it. It was Marxian. The worker confronted his ever enemy, the company, in a kind of play, right? A kind of a kind of morality play. And you they would call it this theatrical class warfare. Theatrical class warfare. And and Ruther, upright, red haired, was the worker, and Henry Ford was the company. And they. This is Henry Ford the second, right? They would, grandson of Henry the, uh, right, the original they, Henry. And they would um, come to an agreement uh, with a lot of rules. The handbook became bigger and bigger, and uh, it was always edge of hostility. There was always an edge of hostility, and so everything. And there were always a lot of rules. So when something broke on an assembly line, a worker couldn't stop the assembly line, and if the assembly line was stopped then someone from another department had to come fix it, maybe from the electrician's union. Uh, no auto worker could do an electrician's work because that broke the union rules. The union rules were very elaborate to protect the worker in this way. So this by the 60s and 70s, the worker was pretty miserable because if he saw something wrong with the process, he couldn't say. And what did he get? He got lots in terms of Relatively high, high big pay, pay big pay packages, good hospital, days off, Saturday. So that was Ruther's way of rewarding the worker um, and keeping solidarity. But the input of the workers was was wasted. Their thoughts were wasted. Whereas as it happened in Japan and particularly at the one company I focus on, Toyota, the workers were allowed input and were respected and felt more part of the team. And therefore, that actually increased productivity. Uh, it was it was part of the way of Toyota and their their whole books. Michael Cusimano has written a beautiful book about this. But but playing at Karl Marx cost us. And what's interesting is um, they, Walter Ruther and Henry Ford too did not kill the auto industry. It lived, but they did kill Detroit. They did kill Flint because what they did was make producing autos and working in Detroit too expensive through their elaborate big packages, through the packages, you know, in a class, you have to win something. Ruther repeatedly won something, although he couldn't always keep up with inflation, but he won something. And that something eventually was that making autos in Detroit was too expensive. And uh, going to, and you've mentioned it before, 
lawyers, judges, hugely expanding the law. You say they felt they could deliver these lawyers what politicians and experts could not, a better society. You mentioned legal services, but it went out beyond that. Uh, Regulations exploded in the 60s. 500-page handbooks on how to teach a class, uh, minutely trying to manage your, 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 your life. Where, where do we stand today? Describe again the, the growth of law just from just telling you what's right, what's wrong, to trying to remake society well, by so the, the bench it, instead of by the legislature. So the question is, where does growth come from? Can it come from a legal decision or does it come from a business? And today we tend to think it comes from a legal decision. And we also have a giant administrative state which slows down the private sector. So this is the big theme now, the administrative state. It existed in the 60s, um, and but, but much smaller and less threatening. And the legacy of the 60s is the growth of that state. We never stopped it. There were so many parts of the great society we didn't take seriously that changed our lives. One was public radio. Um, public radio is great, but it tends to give only one side. For a long time until Reagan, it was all there was. It, so that was a great society effort or this um, extension of unionization of the public sector that changed the pension uh, the very fiscal status of all our states. And the administrative state, you know, Johnson came and went, Nixon came and went, but the administrative state that was, that they had started just expanded. Let's now get to the big one before we close, the economy. And you point out that they thought that that kind of planning, economic planning, made all, the, uh, all other planning possible. The successful manager of economic growth itself that these economists could operate their economies on high and steadily expanding level of production and employment. What happened? Well, it, the government, the, the economy doesn't always behave the way the government wants. They believed in Keynesian economics and micromanagement. They would say things that people wouldn't dare say today, such as, if you, the unions, accept lower wages, we will have less inflation. We might, well, we might have lower wages, but the question of whether we have less inflation, what is inflation? Maybe the money supply would expand and we'd have more inflation and the union would still have lower wages. There's a, there's a great tipping point in the book, Steve. So in 1971, all of a sudden domestic spending was higher. So it wasn't our guns that were our problem. That did it, Vietnam is actually less important to domestic America than the great society at home. I mean, in terms of the way we live now, uh, so the person who had to pay the bill for all this turned out to be Richard Nixon, who had a few impulses uh, on economics. He liked free markets. He didn't like rationing. He understood that, um, but was essentially a lawyer with political ambition. So he allowed the expansion of government and the inflation of the currency because he wanted to win re-election. And in the last chapter of the book, I tell the story of the Fed chairman, Arthur Burns, who tried sort of. He was reputed, as you say, to be the best economist in the land, perhaps the world. Perhaps the world. Yeah. And he was supposed to be independent. He was known since Eisenhower's time, Arthur Burns was known as an independent economist. And that's one reason Nixon got so much applause when he nominated and saw confirmed Arthur Burns to the position of Fed chair. Well, Arthur, uh, 
kept interest rates too low and we built inflation expectation. And I, in the, um, in the chapter I trace, it's called Burns Agonistes. I trace what Nixon did to Burns to make Burns keep interest rates low or not raise them or, you know. He, he didn't manhandle them, but he uh, would cut them off from access, wouldn't have them come to White House church services, all the little indignities he could pile on the Even uh, planning a story in the Wall Street Journal that Burns was demanding a 50 percent raise when Burns wasn't really demanding that. Burns wouldn't be that impolitic as Fed chair. Fed chair demands and suggesting that it was time the Fed came under the Treasury's wing, right? So it, it was a nightmare for Burns. And in the end, it, he was like a torture victim who in the end goes along when you give him a cigarette. He went along with the a very large economic plan written by John Connolly of Texas, absolutely incoherent. That Connolly was uh, Nixon's new Treasury of the Secretary. Guaranteed to cause inflation and trouble. It basically was the action that gave us the stagflation in the 70s. So uh, in the – and again, what you notice – Stagflation meant inflation and low economic growth because economists believed at the time, which you mentioned in the book, a thing called the Phillips curve, which two poisons, inflation and unemployment, but you have to accept one or the other. If you want less unemployment, you got to have higher inflation. If you want – higher, uh, lower inflation, you have to accept more unemployment. And in the 70s, we ended up getting both poisons at the same time. The, yes, the Phillips <laughs> curve was refuted in the 70s by the data. And for Burns, this was just the worst thing. He's like a tragedy character. He's, he's like, I don't know, something in Sophocles, as one of his colleagues said, because he really wanted to fight inflation, and yet he brought it. He did the opposite of what he intended due to it's 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 a story of of political relationships and human weakness, human frailty. The story of Burns it was a disaster, and we're still living with the consequences today of unstable money. Um, in closing, uh, when things go bad, people look for scapegoats, and you point out in the late sixties, early seventies, suddenly we started to blame people, too many people, or even the outgoing chairman of the Federal Reserve. Martin has, was pessimistic about the American character. Maybe we just didn't have the stuff to do great things again. Well, if you're going to be a redistributor, you usually assume you have a zero sum, that, no, that nothing grows. You're, you're preoccupied with redistributing a finite amount of something. So that makes you a pessimist, right? If you don't really believe in growth, you believe in redistribution. And that's what happened. So we had a movement, you know, slowing population growth that was very strong, analogous to our environmental movement today. There wasn't just a campaign for birth control. There was a birth control craze because people believed there had to be fewer Americans because we would run out of resources. And one of the high points of absurdity that I observed was when then Robert McNamara, who was then head of the World Bank, went to Notre Dame and gave a speech about controlling population. That was a big insult to Notre Dame. You don't go to a Catholic place and yell at them about birth control, but that gives you an idea of the level of arrogance of the zero-pop movement. Now, the aftermath of the Great Society, a lot of disillusion, pessimism. Reagan comes in, uh, as you say, trained by Lemuel Boulware, 
And uh, inflation's conquered in the early 80s. We have a huge boom in the 80s and 90s as government uh, ambitions at least recede for the moment. The economy did well. By the 1990s, any faith in the great society was largely gone. But here we are again today, ready to do the same things we tried in the 60s. Why? And nothing is new. It's just forgotten. A long enough period has intervened that we can't remember. And if you would have read a you know, book written 20 years ago about the Great Society, a lot of them said, well, most of this was wrong now, we realize. Uh, but that's gone. There's nothing wrong with idealism. What's important, though, is to look at the record so that you can channel your idealism into something productive. Well, thank you very much, Amity, and uh, for this uh, extraordinary book. Thank you for coming by. Thank you, Steve. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Amity Schles. Certainly her book on the 1960s and early 1970s has high relevance today. Great Society, A New History comes out this week. You can find it online and in your favorite bookstore. And now, my other reads of the week. We have two of them from the American Institute for Economic Research. The first one is entitled, Tariffs Tax Your Freedom, written by Bruce Yandel. And you can find that on AIER.org. Let me say that again, AIER.org. The article makes the point that tariffs are a tax, they reduce freedom, reduce flexibility, and hurt our prosperity. The other article from the American Institute for Economic Research is entitled, Only Freedom Will Save the Auto Industry. It's written by Chloe Ananios, and it's about the fact that regulations have really crushed a lot of the creativity of the American auto industry. She cites the example of a 14-year-old who's come up with a design for a car to get rid of that deadly blind spot. You know, you've ridden in a car, you want to change lanes, but you don't see the car coming beside you. It's not caught by your mirrors. Well, this 14-year-old has come up with a design where that's not going to happen anymore. But with all the regulations out there, Will it ever see the light of day? And remember, that blind spot causes almost 900,000 accidents a year. This is where bureaucracy and regulation get in the way of good common sense. One final article of the week shows that you really can't plan anything. It's called How the Dumb Design of a World War II Plane Led to the Macintosh Computer. The plane was the B-17 created in record time during World War II, great aircraft, but it had a fatal flaw that led to unnecessary crashes and for a long time was blamed on pilot error, but then somebody figured out there was a design flaw. The article is written by Cliff Kuang, K-U-A-N-G, and it's on Wired.com. But what happened with the B-17 laid the groundwork for the Macintosh. You'll really enjoy this one. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.